And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Theodore Gosson, the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome, Dora. This is the first time you've been on a podcast with us? It is. It's oh nice my God. to be here. Well, welcome aboard. We should have talked. Of course, actually, when your first book of stories came out, we weren't even doing the podcast back then. And, and the Forest of Forgetting was... Ten years ago? Was it? I think it was. Yeah, it came out in 2006 when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah. Did we have internet? I think we probably had internet back then. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> it seems like a, a million years ago. So I, I guess a really obvious question to ask you then, since the first stories came out in 2002 or 2001, I guess, is what took you so long to novel? Well, I did this really weird thing that, you know, I don't know why it, it just sort of happened. I did a PhD, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, one of those things where I got my doctorate. Um, and it's hard to believe, but it actually interferes with your writing. <laughs> so, you know, I had to I had to write a doctoral dissertation and everything. And, um, and, and they actually wanted me to work on it and finish it. And I had to teach classes. And, yeah, so that, that was all about it, actually. <laughs> Um, oh, I had a child. That, that would also oh, interfere with your writing time, yeah. That happened. Um, so I guess the answer is life. I had an education to finish. I had a job to get. Um, so I teach full time, which is the thing that interferes most with my writing right now. Although I, you know, shouldn't say that because I'm enormously grateful to have a teaching position in academia. Um, but uh, but yeah, if there's Anything that interferes more with my writing than anything else is reading papers. Well, I guess the, the follow-on question then is, how? what was the experience for you engaging in a longer narrative than you ever had before? Because I'm going to guess that something like The Thorn and Two Roses uh, would have been the longest narrative you would have written before this. Wait, now I've forgotten what that book was called. It wasn't that. It's um, so The Thorn and the Blossom. Oh, sorry, the, the Thorn and the Blossom. The Thorn and the Blossom. The Thorn and the Blossom. A two-sided yeah, love so story. The Thorn yeah. and the Blossom was this little book I wrote, mm. um, and it's an accordion book. Mm. What happened was that um, my editor, Stephen Siegel, who was working for Quirk Books at the time, actually called me. This was while I was writing my doctoral dissertation. And he said, hey, um, can you write this weird book for us? And here's the advance I'm going to give you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's money. And I was a student. You know, I was teaching part-time, trying to finish my doctoral dissertation. Um, and anytime you're a graduate student, you're always desperately in need of money and also clothes, things like that. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll write anything you want me to write. Uh, so I wrote that little book. Um, and it was quite short. It was actually, I actually made it longer than they wanted me to make it. It was two 20,000-word stories. Mm-hmm. So altogether, I guess that's novella length. Um, and it was essentially, it was the same story told from two different points of view. Doing this was completely different. And I had to learn to think about narrative in a different way. The only thing I had written this long for was my doctoral dissertation, which I'd actually finished maybe a year, two years before I finished. I, I'm not exactly i don't i think i've erased you know the memory of it from my mind um for reasons having to do with trauma 
Mm -hmm. But um, uh, my doctoral dissertation was 400 pages long. Um, and that was a very different kind of writing. But um, writing the novel, it felt a little bit like I was doing the same sort of thing. And someone had told me uh, at some point, oh, you know, it shouldn't be that hard for you. You've written a lot of short fiction. You think about how many chapters you want to write, and you're writing that many short stories. That is completely wrong. That is not <laughs> what it's like. And one of the very technical things I had to learn was that I was used to creating these very nice, neat narrative structures in short stories. And if you do that in a novel, that gives your reader a wonderful place to put the book down at the end of every single chapter. And that's not what you want. You want um, this thing happening at the end of the chapter where the reader is going, you know, I just need to read a couple more pages because I need to find out what happened. Um, so I had to realize that wherever I would end a short story, I would keep the ending chapter for that. Yep. And that was actually, it, it sounds very technical, but that was kind of a big learning experience. Um, now I'm writing this and that's that. I'm losing your sound. Yes. The one that you read, right, Gary? Well, yes. Yeah. Actually, we should probably yeah. say the, the, the book is The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter that's coming out in June. We haven't really grounded the book for our listeners at all. So that's the book we're talking yeah. about. So, sorry. Yeah. So, Dora, why don't yeah. you describe the book to us, to, re to our listeners who, who have not seen it as I have? Okay, so the elevator pitch is, it is the adventures of Mary Jekyll, Diana Hyde, Catherine Moreau, Beatrice Rappaccini, and Justine Frankenstein in late 19th century England. Uh, Mary Jekyll, starts, at the very beginning of the book, Mary Jekyll's mother has this died, And her father, uh, Dr. Henry Jekyll, died a long time ago. Um, there were some mysteries. Uh, about his death, mysteries having to do with his laboratory assistant, a very strange man named Edward Hyde. Um, and Mary's not really thinking about all of that. What she's thinking about is her mother has just died, and um, she is left without any money. Uh, so she needs to figure out what to do. The country's going through an economic depression. It's very difficult to find jobs. can't sell the house. Um, and so she's kind of stuck. And learns through her family's lawyer that her mother left some money um, that was going to pay for the maintenance of somebody named Hyde. It was going to somebody named Hyde. And she says, you know, I remember there was this weird Mr. Hyde and, um, and, and I don't know why my mother would be paying him money, but I do remember that there's uh, some money that was offered as I'm going to hunt this guy down, and I'm going to see if I can get that report. So she goes to see Sherlock Holmes, who actually lives um, across Regent's Park from her. One of the fun things about this book was, well, there were a lot of really fun things about this book, but if you look at um, books from this particular time period, many of them took place in London. And if you map it out, you can see where things took place, and actually where probably lived, because we're not given his address in the book, but where he probably lived was probably pretty close to where Sherlock Holmes lived on Taylor uh -huh. Street. 
Um, I actually went to these places. I went to London to do research for the book. Um, and that was another one of the really fun things about uh, writing this book. I should say, by the way, since I just talked about my doctoral dissertation hmm. and, you know, kind of talked about how much time it took, that um, but my doctoral dissertation was about late 19th century Gothic fiction. So my right. doctoral dissertation was about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the picture of Dorian Gray, um, Carmilla, um, I'm trying to remember what else <laughs> now. As I said, I've fucked out because writing a doctoral dissertation is dramatic. Uh-huh. But, um, oh, Dracula, um, uh, some other things by Bram Stoker, some other things by Chardin Le Fanu, but it was about gothic fiction and this monster fiction at this particular time period. Um, and so I, I did a lot of research at the time, and I learned another lesson about the difference between doing research for your doctoral dissertation and doing research for a novel. <laughs> and what's the difference? <laughs> the difference is that um, when I did my doctoral dissertation, I did not need to know um, how much money you need to live on in late 19th century England. Mm. Um, and um, I did not need to know how I was going to get on an omnibus. Um, I did not know how long it took to get um, all these things. I needed to know which space station you So the the research it was really research because what I you know for doctoral dissertation I'm saying smart things about literature. When I'm writing a novel, I need to get a world and it needs to back up. Um so I, I need to give you a sense of what it actually feels like within late nineteenth century London. We might just get you. I'm just going to say one of the things I know. There are several unusual things about the novel, and the novel is in that territory where we've seen Alan Moore, we've seen um, uh, the um, what's the 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 TV series, uh, Penny Dreadful, that sort of thing. But but focusing on women, and as you say, the research impressed me in that. the beginning is a very Dickensian beginning. Somebody faced with poverty, she has to let the servants go. There's the loyal servant who won't go. But all this is placed in the context of the economy of London at the time. So you actually spend a bit of time talking about how hard it is to get a job and how the housing market has been depressed. Dickens never talked about the housing market being depressed. I guess it was just always depressed when he was writing. But but there's a kind of economic grounding in the novel which uh, which makes it interesting as an historical novel. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you think so. Um, that's good. Um, the the late nineteenth century. I actually also teach late nineteenth century fiction, and I just finished teaching a class called the Modern Monster, in which we focused on the fantasy de and we talk about things like the economic situation at the time. We talked we talk about social movements, how difficult it was for the working class. We talk about colonialism. So all of this stuff is is stuff that. I have some grounding in, but then again, trying to show it in a novel is a little bit different. Um, there, there were things, the novel I'm working on now, which is the second one, this is, is um, it, it's, uh, 
the continuing adventures mm-hmm. of the five characters um, takes them to Europe. And um, one of the things I had to find out was um, the phases of the moon. Yeah. Um, in this particular imaginary year when the novel takes place, just to make sure that I had the moon right, like enough sunlight. Because um, one of the things that I find writers often have difficulty, um, and I see this in student manuscripts, um, a fantasy writer, for example, will say it was night, and they walked along the road in the country, and she looked at him, and he could see the expression on his face, and I say, okay, have you been in the country at night in a completely rural area um, when there's no moonlight? You can't see anything. <laughs> um, so when you're writing anything historical, you always have to be really aware of lighting conditions. Yeah. Let me ask you, I mean, you've studied literature of the period. You've got plainly a fascination with it. What do you think draws us to this Victorian era as a time for setting stories? And what makes it interesting and worthwhile to change the perspective of so many of them and give a female perspective on it? Oh, I think there are a lot of different issues there. Um, One question I would ask is, what part of the Victorian era? Because we do have a fascination with it. We love Victorian costume dramas. But there are different periods. There's the early period, right? So there's the Jane Austen stuff, and that has a particular fascination. And then there's the Dickensian stuff, and that's mid-century, where you have the big um, hoop skirts, right? Um, and, and that's a particular period. But then there's the end of the century, and, and that's a different fascination. The fascination of the end of the century, I think, is that it's very much like where we are now. We... It, it was called a fin de siècle, right? The end of an era, yeah. in a sense. It was the end of the Victorian world and the beginning of our modern world. It's what it's the period just before modernism, and the things that happened then really created the world that we live in. Um, but I think there are a lot of parallels between that world and ours. So, for example, um, the, the amount of technological change that was happening um, was it, just enormous. Um, it's funny, you read a novel like Dracula, and people think, oh, Dracula, it's so old-fashioned and gothic. Well, there are mentions of Kodak cameras. There are um, mentions of, I think it's a dictaphone that uh, Dr. Seward uses. It's a, it's a particular kind of phonograph that um, records on wax cylinders. There is this, there are going all over the place. People are taking trains, right? Um, and um, there are omnibuses going everywhere. There's the um, uh, travel was changing. The way was were traveling was changing. Um, the way people were representing and capturing reality was changing. Means of communication were changing rapidly. And so you look at our era where we have internet. We have the way in which um, our definitions of ourselves um, as human beings is changing. Um, you have social conditions changing. You have social conditions. You had, in the late era, you had some which was big and important and scandalous. Because you had these women coming along. They were like, I want to go to college. I have to ride a bicycle. And I want to go to You're talking about uh, what some historians call, now they now call the long 19th century. 
from right. basically the Regency to World War One. And one of the interesting things, you're right about all the differences between the beginning of the 19th century and the end. But in your novel, you're drawing on books, on characters from books that were published if I'm not wrong, as early as 1818 and as late as 1896 or so. Yes. Um, 1818 would be Frankenstein, and then 96, I've actually forgotten the publication date for Dracula. Is that, uh, are you talking about Dracula there? I think it was Dr. Morrow that was 96. Oh, yeah, 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 that was 96. Um, was Dracula 97? I think it was 97, I think. I just had okay. a... But yeah, as late as '97. Okay, yeah, but so that, that, a span of you know almost mm-hmm. 80 years. Yeah, and uh, well, but I couldn't count fifteen. No, oh yeah, we can't uh, we can't we do that. No, okay. You mentioned Dracula. You mentioned Dracula. Um, there are yeah. two. Th- there are two. And as we say, we've seen a lot of these mashups of 19th century characters and that sort of thing. Two things I have not seen before. One is. You bring in an American writer. I mean, Nathaniel Hawthorne shows up among all these Victorians, and, and Rappaccini's daughter, who I don't think I've seen any fiction based on that character. Uh, so, really? Well, I mean, I don't know if there's been... And you would know. I mean, you're the expert. Uh, there must be something, uh, but but it's, it's, it's odd. I mean, it's, it's creative, and Rappaccini's daughter would have been in Italy at the time, so the chronology works out. But, well, it's difficult uh, so, because Hawthorne never really says when that takes place. Um, I, you know, I've shifted things around. I mean, you notice I, I play with all of this stuff. It's kind hmm. of um, I'm writing like alternative literary history, basically. Right, exactly. Um, but there's a reason that she's there. I mean, there's a reason that I'm writing this book, and I don't know if this is, you know, legitimate of me to do, but I kind of want to differentiate what I'm doing from many of the mashups that I've seen, which is that um, um, I'm trying to think about how to say it. I I mean, it's um, everybody has their own reason for going back to this literature, right? Yeah, Um, My reason really has to do with monsters and with writing about these female monsters. So that's, that's why Beatrice is in there. Because this is, it's a, it's a look at, or it's a book about um, female monsters. And that's, when I looked at the literary landscape, you know, I saw things that were mashups. And they were, they're fun. And I really like that sort of thing. Um, I like new stories about um, Sherlock Holmes. I think they're, you know, yeah. a real pleasure to read. But I, I wanted to do something different and the reason I wanted to do it is because I had studied all of these books and the women die they all die um and either that or they get zero speaking lines I mean um the female monster in Frankenstein's monster you know people think about the bride of Frankenstein but that's the movies The, the bride of Frankenstein is never created in the book and I thought well wait a minute somebody needs to her like I want to create her I I want her to live I don't want Frankenstein just to have disassembled her and thrown her body parts into the sea which is what he does um so I I wanted to see that and so I think the one that I started with that really captured my imagination was the puma from the island of Dr. Moreau because I was gonna ask. yeah go ahead Gary 
Oh no, because that, that was the other. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think I don't think we're spoiling anything to say that basically um, uh, Frankenstein's daughter and Moreau's daughter are not actually daughters; they're creations. Um, right. And, um, and a lot sense. of the, the stuff that I'm saying is stuff that's on the jacket copy. So yeah, mm, okay. and, or right. stuff oh, yeah. that you can find in the original novels. I, I won't tell you the plot. No, but in terms of mashups, uh, Catherine Moreau was it Catherine? I think it's Catherine, um, uh-huh. um, was fascinating to me because she echoed not only uh, Wells of science fiction. So there's, a, I want to talk about the relationship of science fiction and fantasy and horror uh, in a hmm. few minutes, but she also seemed to echo uh, those 1940s uh, Val Luton movies, like Curse of the Catwoman. I mean, she's a classic Catwoman from from 40s Gothic movies. Oh, good. I haven't seen those movies, so I'm glad. Okay. But Check that's out what she's Tristan. supposed to be. She's supposed to be – she's the Catwoman, right? That's – that's. She's a panther lady. I think it's a panther. Maybe she's it's a cool. She's oh, a puma. Yeah, okay. Actually, um, I – at one point, my editor, Nava Wolf, who is amazing at Saga uh-huh. Press, um, said, um, we are working on the cover art, and could you please send us a description of each character and – descriptions of any particular things that are um, associated with them. And I sent her descriptions of all of the characters saying, this is how I imagine them. And I, I included a reference photo for Catherine and it was a Puma. Okay. So this is, is the human version of this. Well, the other thing that's, that's interesting, uh, all, all these women are involved and by and large, and this is something that, uh, uh, you, you can't – I guess a male reader can't avoid this. This is not a book you would give to somebody for Father's Day. The, the fathers in this book are pretty no. generally <laughs> rotten. This is not a book about good fathers. Um, except no, except Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes and Watson are just adorable in it. They're, they're nicer than I've seen them in any recent fiction. Oh, good. I'm glad you like them. Good. I'm well, glad. Well, it's one of the things that comes up when you're looking at what, in many ways, is a feminist retelling of a lot of 19th century iconography. That you know, you're going to expect all the male characters to be as bad as the fathers were, and you've got a couple of frankly heroic versions of uh, of, of, of Holmes and Watson who uh, just seem nice. So it's 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 um, it's a feminist book with some good male characters in it, just in case people are skeptical, I guess. Good. And actually, it's got a female villain as well. That's true. That's true. And that's something that I wanted to um, to do because I, um, I I think it would be boring not to have really good female villains. I mean, women get to be villains too, right? And in the second book, you have the same thing. You have uh, good male characters, bad male characters. You have um, uh, good female characters. And you've got to have at least one really villainous female character, I think. Right. Otherwise, you haven't, you know, shown the whole spectrum. It makes oh, me but, wonder. Um, go ahead. Sorry, just to, just to go back just a little bit. So um, one of the issues with writing a book like this was I don't know how much a reader is going to know about the original book. And so I have to write the story so that even if you know absolutely nothing about them, hopefully it will be good and be fun and make sense. But knowing a little bit about the original books gives you a sense of pleasure. 
and it makes you go, oh, this is really, I, I see what she's doing there. This is fun. Um, but the, but Catherine in the original, well, she doesn't exist in the original island of Dr. Moreau because in the original island of Dr. Moreau, Moreau does actually create a woman out of a puma. He is doing that the entire time ah, that the narrative is going on, and she actually kills him in the original, but she's killed at the same time. So she is one of these female monsters. And I saw this in the literature over and over and over again, that there were female monsters, they were fascinating, they were barely on screen, um, either they were killed or they were disassembled in some way before they were ever created. And I thought, you know, I need to do something about that. So Just another instance on this book actually is Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea, <laughs> in a way, which is a retelling of Jane Eyre from the perspective of the mad woman. Well, I was going to say this is a this is this is something that's not only done in genre. It's, there are mainstream versions. There, were, I forget the author, but there was a novel maybe twenty years ago called Mary Riley, which was yep. Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde from the point of view of the maid. Right. Valerie Martin. That's who it was. And there was a movie version with Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts. Okay. Um, I have to ask you, since since I mean I, I don't want to get into academic stuff because we're both academics and we can do this. When you were speaking of female villains, when you were doing your late Gothic nineteenth century research into Stoker, you must have read the Lair of the White Worm. Yes, yeah, I did. That's a horrible, terrifying woman. <laughs> there's some there's some really terrifying women in Victorian literature. Which I think is a good thing. I think, you know, people need to be represented in all sorts of different ways. Um, there's also a um, Bram Stoker character, uh, you know, the Jewel of Seven Stars with Queen Tara. Right. It has this bizarre ending that I've never understood where um, Queen Tara is an ancient Egyptian mummy. Now we're getting into really pretty obscure 19th century literature. Yeah. Uh, people usually think, you know, Bram Stoker wrote Dracula and that was it. He actually wrote a lot of different things. Um, and he wrote this book called Jewel of Seven Stars um, about a group of men who um, revive an ancient Egyptian mummy named Queen Tara. And um, I think in the end, she just kills everybody. It's a very confusing ending. I'm curious, what do you think, Dora, is the value of being able to inhabit these long-established fictional landscapes when you're telling new stories. You know, newer work is often um, closed off because of copyright or whatever, whatever else. But all of the works that you're, you're talking, you know, you're dealing with here or interacting with are long-established uh, parts of uh, parts of our culture. You're able to, to repurpose them, reuse them. What's the value of having them available? And what does it, do you think it brings to your work to be able to, to, to pick them up and, and, and use them the way you have? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I wrote a blog post recently that I called Template Stories, yep. in which I wrote about how there are certain kinds of stories that, are, that function as templates, and fairy tales are the classic example. We keep rewriting fairy tales. I also teach a class on fairy tales, so um, I teach, for example, different kinds of rewritings of Little Red Riding Hood or Snow White um, or uh, Bluebeard. And um, there's, well, you know, there's a level at which everything we write is a rewriting. I mean, I don't think any of us gets up in the morning as writers and write something that is completely 
absolutely new and original and has no connection to previous literature. Um, even if we're, we're not repurposing um, a particular identifiable story, um, we are writing in genres, we're writing in clothes that have been written in before. Um, it's very hard to write anything that's not with the body of literature that you've read um, and the, the genre or tradition that you're writing in. So all of us do this. Um, doing it the way I am doing it um, and you know, other writers. Um, I think what allows us to do is to say something new about the stories that have created us. There's a certain way, I'll take the example of fairy tales. Um, when I teach fairy tales, my students are often astonished to realize how not how, how they perceive the world is you're, you were breaking up on me a little bit there. Um, Sorry. But no, it's not your fault. I mean, it's, it's, it's a technical question. Uh, but you were talking about the fact that uh, you're aware of genres, and obviously you're aware of genres both as a writer and as an academic and a teacher. And mm -hmm. one of the interesting things, again, about the novel is that most of these uh, most of these 19th century things, and I'm not going to get into the really bad zombie ones, but uh, most of them are pretty clearly fantasy. And uh, arguably, the source books you're working with, uh, Rappuccini's Daughter is sort of based in biology. Uh, I don't know whether Stevenson thought that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was science fiction, but it's clear that Wells thought Dr. Moreau was science fiction. Um, mm. Frankenstein is, according to many, the beginning of science fiction. So you've got all these characters from science fiction novels but then you're introducing characters from Dracula which is not I think accountable as a science fiction novel at all wait until you read my second book okay <laughs> there is there is <laughs> I love playing with genres um, there is nothing fantastical in in the book it's all Strictly according to, um, <laughs> it, it's it's all strictly according to um, late nineteenth century scientific theories. If you include the really crazy ones and and, and some theories from alchemy, uh, okay. <laughs> so I, I I mean you know it's um, I was thinking actually about um, what I would call this, and I thought how about scientific romance. Which was Wells' term. It's, it's usable, yeah. I mean, if you think about it in terms of modern science fiction, it's fantasy. But then if you study 19th century ideas, the kind of nutty things they came up with, like the theories of Lombroso, who was a, a criminologist. He was the guy who said you can tell criminals because they're evolutionary throwbacks. Mm -hmm. The kinds of theories they were dealing with that they thought were, were science, were scientific at the time, were, were sometimes just crazy. Um, and you look even earlier, some of the things people believed, um, mesmerism, for example, there were scientific explanations for spiritualism. Um, you know, uh, Conan Doyle, this is a, a common example, but Conan Doyle was a spiritualist. He believed that you could contact the spirits of the dead 
And of course, he's the guy who invented Sherlock Holmes, which is kind of this right. funny disjunction. Um, so um, I, I don't know what I'm writing. I just write it. But um, but yeah, there's there's this funny. No, there, there's, there's, an argue, there's absolutely an argument to be made that if if you're if you're using if you're staying within the parameters of the science of the period within which you're writing, I mean, it, this is basically what Ted Chang does again and again. He's he's basically saying, right. you know, if you accept Babylonian mythology as science, that story is science fiction. If you accept mm -hmm. medieval alchemy as science, that story is science fiction. His argument is it's how you work out the material once you've laid down the rules. I think that's an excellent argument, and everything, the the in in my novel at least, um, you know, everything should be happening is happening logically. It, it should it's all explainable. There is nothing there that is um, completely fantastical. Where you know a dragon comes out of the sky all of a sudden, and everyone goes, "Oh my gosh, what's going on?" Um, it, it's you know, it, it's. But but I'm playing with genres as you know as we're pointing out, um, mm -hmm. and that it's it's something it's not even necessarily something I do deliberately. Gary, you were mentioning um, earlier in an earlier conversation a story of mine um, that appeared recently on Tor.com called Oh, come um, see the living dryad. Living Dryad, and the funny thing is, it was only after I finished writing that story that I realized it wasn't fantasy. I could have sworn it was. But it feels like—I mean, this is this is something that fascinates me because uh, writer after writer gets away with it. I mean, we—I I mentioned your, your story, which feels completely like a fantasy. It deals essentially with our fascination, or the 19th century fascination, with freaks and. And skin disorders and this sort of thing, and it's mm -hmm. it's kind of a murder mystery at, at the same time. Uh, and I mentioned Andy Duncan and Ellen Clages's Wakulla Springs. They had the same experience. They realized toward the end of the story, should we put something fantastic in there? And I can go back to Peter Straub's Coco won a World Fantasy Award. Not really any fantasy in it. But if you're convincing enough as a writer, you get away with it. We think it felt like a fantasy. Yeah, and um, I don't remember, it was so long ago that I read it, but um, one of my formative experiences was reading Ursula Le Guin's or Simeon Tales. Yeah. Which, um, I don't even remember if there are fantasy elements in there. I mean, it's kind of alternative Eastern European history, um, but it feels completely, it felt completely like fantasy to me. Um, yeah, even... It was simply an imaginary country somewhere somewhere close to your homeland, I guess, somewhere close to Hungary yeah. or Czechoslovakia or Romania. Um, yeah. And the other uh, author I was thinking that, that falls into this category for me is Isaac Dinesen, um, the Danish writer uh, who I was looking back. She's one of my favorite writers. I read her uh -huh. teenager. I was looking back over her stories. And she's actually really important for a lot of fantasy writers. A lot of fantasy writers kind of name tech her as an influence. Her stories, for the most part, are actually not fantastic, but they sound like fantasy. She made the distinction between story and tale. She said, I'm writing tales. And that was very important for her. That was in her book called Seven Gothic Tales, I think, mm -hmm. uh, where she made that distinction. But um, so it's, it's interesting because... Uh, a, a, piece of trivia which is of, of no relevance to anybody but she wrote a novel 
called the An- Angelic Avengers under another name, and it was published as a gothic paperback by Ace Books, I believe. Uh, and and again, it's it's a, it's a pretty good. I read it decades ago. It's a pretty good gothic novel with the you know light on in the big house on the hill and the somebody at least the cover some some woman in a nightgown running downhill from it. Um, but again, I don't recall as, that there was anything fantastic in it. But she really was interested in that gothic atmosphere. Yeah, I think that may be the one thing by her I haven't read, but um, but it's a it's a matter of atmosphere and honestly. I'm not quite sure what it is that turns something into a story that feels like fantasy, even if it's really, even if there's nothing magical in it. Yeah. I think part of it's uh, tone and uh, mood. And I think also it's how, how you choose to focus on the material that's in the story. How important are the the mechanics of the world as opposed to how much are you focusing on the characters at the foreground of the story you're telling? I think that's what begins to push you towards the feeling that you're reading a fantasy rather than a science fiction story. That tends to be is the there, thing. Hmm? Is there also some sense of distance? Because Dinesen's tales are they feel very distant. They feel like they're happening in a kind of imaginary Europe. And that also is what's happening in um, uh, Orsinian tales. Although of course those are in fact happening in an imaginary country. Everything well, is of, but. No, I, I, I think part of what goes on also, and it's, it's, it's Jean Clute's term is polder for a, a setting that seems isolated from the rest of the world, even though in a historical sense, there's no, there's no magical barrier. It just, Seems like an isolated area. I wonder if another thing, to go back to your story, which everybody should look, it's still up on tour.com, uh, come see the living dryad, that there's also a fascination with the grotesque. And I think something which deals sufficiently with grotesquery conveys the feeling of fantasy. And I'm thinking not only of your story, but of um, Mervyn Peake, of, of Titus Grown. If you look at the uh, Gorman Gas trilogy, and try to find the magical moment when it turns into fantasy, I don't think you can find it. It's just very grotesque and colorful and cut off from the outside world. Would you say the same thing about some of the stories of Angela Carter as well? Yeah, I think so. It seems to me to also fit into that category. Sometimes she has something explicitly fantastical going on, but there are stories... um, like uh, there's there's one about Lizzie Borden, um, and I don't remember anything fantastical in there, but it it feels of a piece with the rest of her writing. It feels fantastical. Exactly, uh, and 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 that that feeling I think is as as I say I don't know whether it's something that worries writers like yourself, where you realize there's no there's no actual fantasy in that story, and and and, and one of the questions I've talked to other writers who've had this concern without naming them, that if I don't put something fantastic in it, how am I going to get a nomination for a Shirley Jackson Award or a Hugo or a World Fantasy Award? They're, they're going to catch me. They're going to catch me out. They're going to find out that I'm trying to slip one under the door. Well, I mean, the the concern comes up when you're trying to sell the story, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a good thing I didn't realize there was no fantasy in this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Ellen Datlow bought it. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, sometimes I 
do worry about that. And um, there's, when I talk to my agent, um, I, I've said, here are ideas for stories that I have. And by the way, you know, some of them are more realistic and some of them are more fantastic. Um, and I don't know what's going to sell where. And um, <laughs> they might be completely different. I, I, I don't know exactly where these fit. Um, but they're, and I've actually been asked, well, do you want to write under a pseudonym? Are you doing totally different things? And I said, no, you know, these are all coming out of me. These are all, they're all my stories. They're, they're coming out of the same sensibility. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, I would love to write a murder mystery. That's one thing that totally logical, no fantastical elements of murder mystery, um, contemporary murder mystery. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. That's good luck with that. Yeah. I'm curious, what draws you to writing about monsters? Oh, gosh, what draws any of us to monsters? <laughs> I just <laughs> I just taught a whole class on this. Um, I, you know, it, I'm not sure that it's even so much about monsters. It's the way we assign monstrosities. It's like, who gets to be a monster? Yeah. Who is turned into a monster? Who decides who's a monster? Um, there's a, a way that we as human beings monsterize other people, um, and we do it to immigrants, we do it to people uh, of different races, we do it to foreigners of various sorts. I mean, we, we're seeing this, right? We're seeing the monsterization of people on the news all the time. We do it in terms of gender, um, and the late 19th century is a wonderful era for this because for example, um, you had the new women, right? So yep. you had the suffrage movement, you had women agitating for um, greater rights, greater freedoms. Um, and at the same time, it's this art. Uh, late 19th century art is absolutely filled with sirens, with mermaids drag men down to their death. Medusa becomes a really important motif. Like um, you have you have wonderful images of women who are half animals. And this is all over the place. Why? Well, I think there are two sides of the same coin. Women trying to get the right to vote and greater economic freedom, and then women as monsters. I think those are absolutely Well, I wonder, uh, speaking as somebody who is a scholar of the 19th century literature, as, as a Hungarian, and as somebody who knows uh, Bram Stoker, what do you make of the ideas which have been around quite a bit in Dracula scholarship that the whole thing of Dracula vampires was really based on a fear of Eastern European immigrants which were apparently happening at a, a fairly rapid clip during the time Stoker was writing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the, one of the problems with um, <laughs> studying something like Dracula, and, and I, I spent a long time studying Dracula. Um, I realized today, I was looking back through, I needed to find um, a piece of information just today, which was where Jonathan Harker was a lawyer, and it was Exeter. So I had to go back through the book. I was going uh -huh. back through one of my Dracula volumes, um, looking at the footnotes, going, oh, wow, these are pretty good footnotes. I'm glad whoever did this um, wrote such good footnotes. And I realized that I was the one who'd written the footnotes because um, I was a research <laughs> assistant to the editor at the time. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's right. I did this research. Um, so 
Dracula, um, I actually, I worked as a research assistant to um, a scholar named Jean-Paul Riquelme at Boston University, uh, who was also my dissertation first reader. He was my advisor. Um, and I did the footnotes on the Bedford book edition of Dracula. Um, so I went through that text with a fine-tooth comb, and I researched things like Yorkshire dialect, and I went through a lot of the scholarship. Um, and the, the problem with Dracula is that when you talk about what sort of fear it represents, there are so many scholarly perspectives yeah. saying so many different things. So, yeah, it could have been a fear of Eastern European immigration, which was indeed happening at the time. There have been people who have read it as fear of the Irish, um, but in both directions. They have read um, uh, Dracula as a kind of um, uh, uh, Irish Catholic aristocrat um, who is reinvading England. Um, uh, they sort of even they're, they're sort of different and sometimes opposing ways to read it in terms of Stoker's Irishness. Um, there are readings that talk about fear of women, fear of technology. Uh -huh. um, so it, it's, and honestly, I think one of the reasons monsters are fascinating, um, Judith Halberstam wrote a book on monsters, um, uh, whose name I've forgotten, but it's um, something about the technology of monstrosity. And she talks about monsters mm. being bodies that combine as many fears as possible. So we take all of our fears and we put them into the monster. Um, for example, Mr. Hyde. If you look at how Mr. Hyde is constructed, in Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, he is atavistic. So he represents a kind of Darwinian fear of degeneration. He is uh -huh. He is turning into Mr. Hyde is described as unmanning. So there's something about him that is also feminine. Um, there have been people who've made the connection to Irishness, again, because there was such tension between the English and the Irish during this period that there's something about Hyde that is reminiscent of Irish stereotypes. Um, so it's, he combines um, all of these things. And in a way, he's kind of the shadow self of the ideal English gentleman in that English gentleman, when you cast a shadow, um, the shadow is all the things you're not. Ursula Le Guin talks about um, yeah. but drawing on Jungian psychoanalytic theory. But the shadow that you cast represents all the things you are not. So Hyde is the shadow of Jekyll. He represents all the things that have been injected in the making of the good um, English gentleman. He's also described twice as a juggernaut. So there's something about him that is um, linked to uh, the foreign and the colonial subject. So that's the thing about monsters. I mean, when you think about what kind of fears they represent, you can stick all kinds of fears into monsters. And the really good monsters represent a whole array of fears. So the, there's even an old, I think it's, it's, it's archaic by now, I'm sure, but I remember a long time ago there was a classic Freudian reading of Jekyll and Hyde where the ego simply separates into the superego and the id, and there you have it. Um, and 
it's, 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 and Jung, I think, probably modified that a little bit. But, but there is this fear, both of the hyper-rational and the completely irrational, uh, as aspects of human behavior. Yeah, and you also see that in H.G. Wells, actually, because um, huh. right after he writes um, The Island of Dr. Moreau, he writes War of the Worlds, and the Martians in War of the Worlds are hyper-rational. They're basically just brains who get around by putting themselves in machines. Yeah, and he had written a short, an essay earlier than that called, I think, Man in the Year Million, in which the evolved human race a million years from now are basically the Martians he describes in the War of the Worlds. <laughs> so our animal selves are scary, our devolved selves, and then our hyper-rational machine selves are also scary, right? Yeah, exactly. Even so, machines are both scary. So what you're saying is that everything is really scary except being sort of a bland, well-adjusted individual. That may be the scariest of all because you know, <laughs> all around you, right? Everyone in Aldo Huxley's brave new world is bland and well-adjusted, and they're terrifying. Actually, Shirley Jackson's pottery, those, those kids are bland and well-adjusted, and they're stoning people to death. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What's terrifying about that story is its ordinariness, and that's one of the things that Shirley Jackson was very, very good at. Right. Did you? Did you know? Story, and you know, people are having breakfast together, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this is terrifying." Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of fiction that sort of. Uh, there are writers who do that very well. Mary Rickard is a good example of a recent piece of piece yeah. of trivia about um, about. Uh, the lottery, uh, which got more – it's well known. It got more letters to The New Yorker than any other short story they had ever published. But apparently some of the letters were uh, not realizing it was a work of fiction, asking, where is this village? It might be a nice place to take the kids next summer. <laughs> People are terrifying. <laughs> Reality is terrifying. I mean in a way this is this is – you know, the continuing power of H.P. Lovecraft, Lovecraft seems to have found literally everything terrifying. And and there it is in his kitchen. Are you, have you been tempted to work in Lovecraft territory? Because a lot of people are doing that these days. I don't know that I could. Um, and it's a really interesting question. Um, I had this very, I had this, interesting education in college in that I was reading a lot of magical realism, and part of that was coming to me in classes. So I was reading Marquez, I was reading Isabel Allende, I was reading um, Caribbean literature. My um, undergraduate uh, thesis actually was on madness and Caribbean literature. Um, and then at the same time, I was also reading and I was reading Lovecraft, and I read a lot of you're dropping out again. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm losing that. Could you repeat what you just said about Lovecraft? Yeah, uh, he's, you know, obviously he's problematic. We all know that. Um, I love his writing style. I think the way he constructs stories is amazing. I think that would, for me, that would be a very hard work in. It would be a real challenge. If, if someone said to me they really wanted a Lovecraftian story and I had, and I found some sort of angle that I wanted uh -huh. to come at it from, I might be able to write something, but 
Go ahead, John. Well, what I was going to say is what I wonder, actually, uh, and what I you know, wondered when I was li- listening to you talk about the strange case of the alchemist's daughter and when I was looking at the book is in some ways what you're doing with uh, you know, these works of, of 19th century fiction pretty much the same as what uh, a lot of these other writers are doing right now in the Lovecraftian oeuvre, basically taking an established fictional milieu and changing the perspective and broadening the background of it in order to cast a new light on the kind of things that were being discussed in those texts. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would agree with that. And I say it because I mean, Gary's talked before about what's really happening in science fiction and fantasy right now is a revolution in perspective. And we've also talked about this idea that, um, the access to the cultural milieus that we have and being able to, present them again is is inherently valuable that it that it opens up the fictional world and the sort of imaginative stage that readers can experience and it seems to me that that is the actual um task that's being undertaken in a text what like whether it be the dream quest of Val Bow taking Lovecraft's uh, the dream quest of unknown Kadath or whether it's exactly what you're doing with the strange case of the alchemist's daughter Yes. Yeah, it, it opens up possibilities that um, weren't explored, I would say, in the earlier texts. Um, but the other thing is, you, as a writer, you have to have a text that speaks to you in a particular way before you can do that. Um, and it's interesting which texts speak to which writers. So there are texts that I love, there are books I love that I couldn't necessarily rewrite. For example, um, I just saw that someone had done a new version of Emma. Yeah. I actually, you know, I was about to say that I couldn't do that with Jane Austen, but I remember that I wrote a a story named Pug that was actually (laughs) about Jane Austen. So I took the, um, Pug is a dog. um, And in... um, Mansfield Park, I believe. And um, I was really fascinated at the time by all the characters that don't get to speak. And so Pug is a kind of um, science fiction story about the characters that don't get speaking lines in Jane Austen, one of whom is Pug. And it was um, inspired by a uh, statement by E.M. Forster in Aspects of the Novel where he calls Pug a flat character. And I was like, wait a minute, what about the flat characters? You know, maybe we can give the flat characters stories too. You're actually going to write about the women Jane Austen didn't see? <laughs> I did write about that. It was a story. I mean, <laughs> at some point, Gary, you've just forgotten. I did write about I have. You're right. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. My main character was, um, oh, what was her name? Uh, Catherine de Burr. Mm. Do, do right. you remember? Uh, no, it's it's not Catherine de Burr. It's. Uh, Lady Catherine, Lady DeBurr's daughter, the one who basically gets no speaking line. She's supposed to marry Darcy. She's really sick all the time. Oh, yeah, she's right. Okay. not valued by the novel. That's my main character. I thought, well, wait a minute. What about her story? Doesn't she get to be a person? Well, part, so part, part of what you, so, so, so you want to give you want to give a voice to the unvoiced, um, which yeah. the whole of literature is waiting for you if you want to do that. Um, yeah, but that's what I've been doing. I mean, um, th- there was a an anthology that John Joseph Adams did on 
the John Carter of Mars stories. Yeah. And he said, you know, what would you like to write for this anthology? And I said, I want to write about, I think his name is his Wula, who's a dog, basically. Yeah. He's a Martian dog. And I was like, Wula gets a story. Give me a character who doesn't get to speak and I'll give that character a story. So if I were to write a Lovecraftian story, I would probably do the exact same thing. And it would probably, I actually had a, an email conversation at one point with um, China Mieville on this. Um, uh. We were disagreeing pretty vehemently about Lovecraft. Um, and uh, my take on it was if I was going to write a Lovecraftian story, it would be about one of the female characters. And I would give her a story. And there were almost no love, female Lovecraftian characters. Almost none at all. Well, one of the things you're doing with, um, with to get back to the strange case that's, of the Optimus Stardust. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. But it's not just a matter of giving voices to these women. You're uh, by, by the end of the novel, and I'm sure this is going to happen in the second novel, um, these women are empowered in very specific ways. I mean, to some extent... There's a superhero myth being developed at the end of this novel. How so? Well, each of the women has a specific um, skill or talent or power that individually may or may not do them much good. But when they learn to put them together, they create a, a team of what the Victorian equivalent of superheroes might have been. Yeah, which is a really good argument for having action figures. <laughs> Absolutely. I, 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 cannot, I cannot wait for the Catherine Moreau Panther Lady uh, action figure. I'll buy, I'll buy yeah. that. <laughs> I think there should be one. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're probably getting towards the end of the hour. I, uh, I would say that The Strange Case of the Alchemist Order will be out from Saga Press in June, I think. June so, 20th. June 20th. So, mm -hmm. so readers will be able to experience the, the book themselves. It's an enormous amount of fun if you want to get an advanced taste of it. There is a, the source, the origin story is still available online at Strange Horizons. Uh, the, the Mad Case of the Scientist's Daughter or something, if I, if I remember correctly. Mad Scientist's Daughter. It's the Mad Scientist's Daughter. It was originally going to... So the, the story was called The Mad Scientist's Daughter. The novel was originally going to be called that, and then um, for various reasons we decided to change it. Ah. And so, but yeah, if you look up, you know, my name, Theodora Goss, the Mad Scientist's daughter, you can find, um, you can find the story. Yeah. And so, I, I would take the, the, you know, this opportunity to sort of thank you very much for making the time to join us. We really, really appreciate it. It's been a, a great conversation, and we look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to the both of you. It's been fun, and then. Until next week, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>